So if you would turn to Luke chapter 18, we're going to spend all of our time uh, looking at Luke 18. If you like reading the Bible, we're going to read lots of verses today and look at some things and make some comments on some of these really important things. I love this time of year just reflecting on what Christ did during the last week of his life and so I thought it would be fitting today for us to take some time to to look at some of those significant moments and uh, and and get a good understanding of why they took place and their importance for us in our lives. So Luke 18, we're going to read 31 through 34 first, and we'll look at our first point uh, connected with this. So this is probably at least at least within two weeks and maybe even less than that of Christ's death. But he's about to walk through Jericho in chapter 19. And on the other side of Jericho is when he will approach uh, Bethpage and Bethany and be close uh, to the city of Jerusalem in the last week of his life. So Luke 18, 31. So in taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything, notice this, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he was said. This is the third time in Luke's gospel where he shares that Jesus is telling the twelve what is about to take place that's pretty imminent and around the corner for them. It doesn't mean that, that he only told them three times, but Luke records for us, and this is the last one. It is very imminent around the corner for Christ, and things not only for uh, Jesus are going to greatly change during that last week, it's going to really change for these men. They have followed him around for a little over three years. It's coming to an end, and, and in many ways, they don't really fully grasp all that is about to transpire. Um, it's been an incredible ride for them, walking with Christ and experiencing things. But I want you to notice what it says here. And this is so important as we think about Jesus. It says this, that everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. There is not an aspect about Jesus' life that doesn't have scriptural fulfillment, which reveals to you and I and brings assurance to you and I that what the prophets wrote came true in the life of Christ, and you and I can embrace those things and accept those things, and they can have um, uh, a profound effect upon our life in regard to the assurance that we have in the Scripture. Jesus welcomed this in His own life as well. So everything that was written that was going to come and take place was about to be, if it hadn't been fulfilled, was about to be fulfilled. Now, they should have known by now that Jesus never spoke idle words, did He? That there was a purpose to everything that He taught and everything that He proclaimed. And so that when He was speaking about these things, He was meaning what He was saying that this is about to take place. Um, he was not an idle talker about trivial matters, but he was setting forth real substance that they needed to embrace and understand that was necessary for the days ahead. So under this first point this morning, what I want us to see is this. Until the very end of his life, Jesus embraced everything that the Father had for him. He came to accomplish and do the will of his Father and you and I get the great benefit of that. So until the very end, 
he is going to continue to embrace his purpose in regard to why he came. Part of why he came was that he would really deeply suffer. He would be mocked. He would be spat upon. And Jesus knows this reality. And he is willing to embrace it. He's not trying to find a way out of this and to escape it. There are three briefly unique things about Jesus embracing um, his purpose until the very end that I think are important uh, to note before we look at point two this morning. And the first one is this, is he embraced the fullness of his Father's will for him totally and completely until the very end. Every we, We've seen in John's Gospel, we've been walking through that, Jesus didn't say anything, didn't do anything, unless he knew that the Father wasn't assuring in, in a part of that. So we will not move without you. We just sang that. This was Christ's life. He would not do anything or say anything unless the Father was a part of that. And so one of the things Christ embraced until the very end was he fully embraced the Father's will. Secondly, he embraced everything that was written about him. He fully embraced it. So he's telling them, this is what's about to take place, men. We're going to go up there. Um, I'm going to be handed over to Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked. Um, I'm going to be shamefully treated. They're going to spit upon me. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. But I got some good news. On the third day, I will rise again. And it was just, they were having a hard time coming to the place of understanding that. But Christ embraced the Scripture in every way until the very end. Thirdly, we learn this from John chapter 13, is that he loved the disciples until the very end. Even though they aren't understanding everything, we learn this from John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, listen to what John writes, he loved them until the end. So he didn't stop, even with the 12, of going, I'm just going to go about 96%. That's better, you know, that's better than, than something else. But no, he loved them until the very end. He went all the way. So he embraced his Father's will until the end. He embraced what the Scripture had to say about him until the end. And then he loved and poured his life into the 12 until the very end. And I love this text here where God, in humility, bows and washes and ministers and serves the twelve. And so we know that he embraced this. And so one of the things we see leading up to the very last week of Jesus' life is that he embraced his purpose until the very end. And I hope everybody in the room is this way this morning. That not only in the beginning years of our life, but in the middle years of our life, in the end years of our life that we want to finish well. We want to, we want to faithfully walk with God in such a way that we finish what He has entrusted with us. Now go to Luke chapter 19. First part, He encounters Zacchaeus as they go through um, Jericho. And then He teaches on the ten minas. And then they are approaching Bethpage and Bethany. And so in Luke 19, 28, this is Monday... 2,000 years ago, tomorrow, um, this is Monday, what takes place when he begins to approach Jerusalem. So let's read it, 28, Luke 19, verse 28 and following. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, 
where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, um, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. This is what they said. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's look at the second thing that takes place on this Monday in the last week of Christ's life. He embraces the joy of the people's worship. He allows them to get excited and worship not in a scheduled setting, but in a public setting, seeing Christ come in, the people just get caught up in the moment and they began to worship Him. And so it's an interesting story here. I'd like to be these two guys. Hey, you're going to go into town and you're going to see a coat tied up there and uh, just go up and untie it. And if anybody happens to come out and says, what in the world are you all doing? That belongs to me. You just tell them that the Lord needs it and everything will be okay. I encourage you after church today to go to Lowe's or Home Depot and uh, just or go to Walmart and just after somebody's checked out, just grab their grocery card and take it out to your car. And when they're like, what are you doing? You just tell, look, the Lord has need of this, okay? And so see how well that goes over today. And so I I want you to notice this. That would not go over well, by the way, today. But it goes really well in the story here. And you know why? Because sometimes even in the minute details, God is sovereign over all those things. And if He can do that, if He can prepare the way for two disciples to go in and untie a colt, and the owner come out and says, what are you doing? Well, hey, the Lord needs that. Okay, then... The Lord can use this. If He can do that in a situation like that, do you not think that He's really concerned about even the bigger moments of our lives that seem so devastating and overwhelming where we really need um, Him to work? And I just want to remind us today, He works in those moments. In the small moments of getting a cult and in the big moments of, I don't know what to do about this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. He can be incredibly trusted. And if he can do something as unique as this, don't underestimate what his sovereign power and authority can do. And so these guys get it. They bring it back. Jesus gets on it. And he begins to move from Bethpage. I've been to Jerusalem. I was, a, I was 12 years old. Um, and I can remember coming from Bethany. And I can remember coming to the place where the, the Garden of the Gethsemane is and the Mount of Olives and you can see the city, and there was a way and a pathway that you came down to come into the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus begins to make his way. 
And as he's making his way riding on this, it says here, the text tells us that the whole multitude of his disciples, these are people who were following not just the twelve, but there was a larger group that followed them around. And as he's riding on this, there's just a moment that must be, and it's pretty clear, Holy Spirit inspired and moving where the people get caught up seeing King Jesus begin to ride into the city. And it's an amazing moment. So this is away from the temple. This isn't, hey, we meet at at 8.30 and 10.30 every week to come together to to sing and to, to focus on God. No, this is walking on a Monday morning, seeing Jesus ride on a colt on the week of the Passover, and the people getting excited about who Jesus is. Now, so the Mount of Olives was up top. The city was kind of across there. Was a, there's a Kidron Valley that, that goes through there. And so if you were down by the city, you could look, look up on this hill and you could see people taking off cloaks. It says this, Matthew writes for us, that there are trees on the outside of the city there and they were going to the trees and cutting off limbs and then laying them down on the ground. And if you were to watch this from a distance, you would begin to hear a rumble And it says here that with a loud voice, they began rejoicing and praising Jesus. And you would see this one riding on a colt, this loud noise coming up, and just thousands upon thousands of people who had come for the Passover feast, now gathering with the disciples and worshiping Jesus. This worship is not confined to a building. And by the way, worship is not to be confined to a building. It is to be our life. It is to be when we wake up in the morning. When we're driving down the road, let it rip. Who cares what the other people, just be safe. Worship. Get excited. These people see. Sometimes, you know, we, sometimes we go like, man, the disciples, they never clued in. Guess what? On this day, they clued in. He was King Jesus. And not only the 12, but this bigger group, they are worshiping Christ as he comes into the city. This is one of the rarest glimpses of public worship in the Gospels um, by those who are closest to Jesus. We see some of these other unique moments in pictures throughout the Gospel, but right here, this is just public, it is spontaneous, it is sincere, it is authentic, and it is taking place in the streets just outside the city. And so it says here that the whole multitude of disciples including the twelve, were doing two things. They were rejoicing and they were praising. Now we all know what rejoicing is. If you've got a favorite sports team or some other thing, we know what it's like to get excited. Like all the Baylor Bear people like Mark Dono yesterday was watching basketball games, not being a human being but just glued to television, watching basketball, rooting for the Lady Baylor Bears and for the Men Baylor Bears in the NCAA tournament, and you get excited if you're, you know, you, you know that if you're, if, if you like a team and things are going well, you get excited and you get moved. Now, this one is really unique. This isn't a sports team. This is the king, infinite God of the universe riding on a colt, and the people just get caught up in the moment, and they just began to rejoice, and they just began to rejoice out loud, and then it says this, and then they praised. What does praising means? Well, it's partly what we did a while ago where we, we sang and gave, gave affirmation to the nature and the glory of God's character. And I think that's one of the key aspects of praising. It is our affirmation 
acknowledging and exalting and praising the name of God. And here, the text says that they are saying to Him, um, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And so with their voice, they are affirming the nature of Christ. And they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are affirming Christ as the Messiah as He is coming into Jerusalem. There is no mention of man. There's no mention of anything else. This is a Christ-centered moment where they are worshiping Him. And the worship goes into the streets, away from the safety of the building of the church, or the building of the synagogue, or the temple that is there. And it seems to be one of those moments where the people are just moved by God to worship Him. Well, the Pharisees, they loved this moment, didn't they? No, they didn't like this moment. And so they're outside of the temple, and they're seeing all this commotion going on. And I want you to watch this. Jesus is riding probably side saddle, coming in to the city. People are taking off cloaks, laying them down. It is loud. People are pushing. People are wanting to get close. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord. And the religious leaders and all of their garb work their way, and they get up close to Jesus riding on the donkey and say, hey, you've got to stop this. You've got to stop all this worship. Worship is reserved to God. And so you need to rebuke all of your disciples, all of your followers here. And you need to tell them to stop the worship. And Jesus says, no, I'm not. Because this is a God-ordained day where I'm going to be the center of things. And so I could, I, I could shut up all of the worship. But if I do that, the rocks here all around the city of Jerusalem. They are going to cry out. So someone, there's going to be loud proclamation today from the people or the rocks. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees, no, that's not the case. If these people were silent, the very rocks here, they would cry out. People and rocks' purpose is to proclaim the greatness and the majesty of the Lord. All of creation sings that He is great. So the mountains underneath the ocean, they cry out today, King Jesus is Lord. The rocks out in this field, the rocks in, in the Swiss Alps, the rocks called the Rocky Mountains, and all of these places, they cry out that God made them, that He is their Creator and He is worthy of Worship And so Jesus tells the religious leaders, I am the center of everything, of people's worship and of rock's worship. And so this day is a day that is ordained to be one that is worship. And let me remind us of something that's important today. Worship is more than music. Worship music is an aspect of worship. But worship is walking down the street and enjoying God. Worship is eating a meal in community and worshiping God. Worship encompasses our whole life acknowledging and recognizing the greatness of God in our lives. And when we worship Him, we are shaped by Him. But when our worship gets confused, we are shaped by other things. And when you and I lose Jesus as the sole object of our worship, we will naturally lose the objective and purpose of our lives, which is to glorify Him. So on this day leading up, Jesus embraces everything until the very end that He was supposed to do 
And on this Monday, he embraces the joy of people's worship. So why do the religious leaders act this way? What was their issue? Well, religious people love rules, and they never really understand relationship. They don't understand the intimacy. And the people following Jesus on this day, they, they long to know him. They want to acknowledge him, and so they do so. And in regard to worship, I just want to remind us this morning, man does not get to define what worship looks like. The Scripture does. God does. God defines what this looks like. And so please notice here, Jesus didn't turn to anybody and say, Calm down, everyone. Y'all are too excited. You're too passionate about me. Hey, shh. Religious leaders are going to hear this and are going to like this. No, he just, he lets it flow. He lets it flow that day. Him being the center of attention. Them acknowledging that the Messiah is riding into town. And as he gets closer to the city, Luke now tells us a third thing that's important to see in verse 41. Look with me in Luke 19, 41. And when he drew near, he's still outside the city, and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is really significant. So watch this. He's riding on a colt. People are rejoicing, praising. Pharisees are like, stop, stop. No, no, we're not stopping. I'm the center of the universe of the rocks and the people's worship. And then he beholds the city. And I was 12. I didn't appreciate it. I would really like to go back over there again. But I remember standing with my grandfather who was a pastor. And I watched him cry just outside the city of Jerusalem, thinking about these moments. I had some really powerful moments watching my grandfather on that Holy Land tour. And I remember him looking at the wall, that's that, that ancient wall that's still there outside of Jerusalem. And I thought back on that, and I thought back of what it must have been like for Christ. You remember what we, you remember how Romans 10, we've been walking through Romans? Remember how Romans 10 ends? It says that all day long God held his hands out to an obstinate people. And for thousands and thousands of years he held his arms out to the Jews. Wanting them to come. And I think again on this day his heart, notice this, God's heart breaks. And this word in the Greek isn't um, watching a a television show and, or, or a show in your house or at the movie theater and you get moved and you get a little tear in your eye. That's not what he does here. I mean, he, he on the inside is broken over the reality that he had come to the people that he and the Father and the Spirit had uniquely chosen, the covenant people, and he had held his arms out to them. And by Friday, they're not going to be saying, Hosanna, son of David. They're going to shout, crucify. And he's broken in this moment, weeping. And now Jesus is being loud. This word here indicates that he was 
crying and he's moved and, and he's moved for this reason is that he knows that Israel missed it for most of their history. The love that God had for them and the purpose they could have experienced. And he knows their present. He knows their history. He knows the present reality. And he has this deep love and compassion for this great city called Jerusalem. Matthew records these words in Matthew 27, 23, 37. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Yesterday morning, I came home and I'd let the garage door open. And we live in a cul-de-sac. And I came back outside and a little, you probably have seen them, I think up here, there, there's some, there's a bunch of them up here, we see them all the time. They're called guineas, little, little you know, guinea birds. Well, I had a little tiny one in my garage yesterday when I stepped out. It, 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 I, I'm surprised it didn't run into the house. That would have been a fun adventure. Um, but I kind of scared it when I opened the door, and it ran underneath Pam's car. And so I hollered back in, there's a guinea in the garage. And so Candy came running out, and we watched it. If you know anything about guineas, they're never alone. They are, they are always with, with multiple friends and family. I don't know who they all are. I've never studied guineas, but anyway... But they're with a lot of other guineas. And so Candy and I tried to capture him, you know, to, could we take him somewhere? Could we help him? And, and he just, in our cul-de-sac, just chirped, and he was looking for others, and he was isolated. And I knew that I was preaching on this today, and I thought about this little guinea looking for mom that he could get under her wings and find safety and security. And these words that Jesus speaks here are just incredibly powerful. How long have I longed you, Israel, to bring you under my wings as a hen longs to bring her chicks to protect them? You see, the great detriment of the city, of the world, and the great detriment of Jerusalem was this, is that they were not willing. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37. Luke doesn't record it. But Jesus says these words, I long to gather you, but you were not willing. You just didn't want to come. You didn't want me to love you the way that I wanted to love you. And sin and rebellion in our day and time in the cities is the same issue that Jerusalem was having on this day. And the cities of the world are broken, are they not? Why? Because we have rejected the unbelievable offer of God's Son for redemption, and for hope, and for peace. And Jerusalem's issue was always that its inhabitants were not willing to walk with God, and it was evidence over and over, and it was really evidence here in their rejection of Jesus. It is the unfortunate story of the Old Testament of God's unique covenant people not being very faithful at all. They just didn't really want that kind of nearness And I want to ask the question just very personal this morning. Do you and I want that kind of nearness with God? Do we we want to draw near and and let Him be the one who takes care of us? And the issue is, there's a history to so many places that causes such a great detriment. And yet in the midst of that, there's a love and a compassion for God for the people of the world. But the detriment of the cities and the people of the world is sin and rebellion And then that all leads to an ignorance of not understanding what's taking place. Look at Luke 19.42 again. Jesus says, saying, would that you, even you. In other words, y'all should know this. You should know this. And if you had known on this day the things that make for peace, 
But now they are hidden from your eyes. So just like Jerusalem, just like Collin County, just like the cities of this great nation, when you reject for a long time the love of God and the plan of God, the most natural thing happens and takes place, and it's things like crime, murder, adultery, theft, gossip, slander, wrath, lying, cheating, corruption, discounting of lives, abortion, abuse, trafficking of people, and on and on it goes. These things dominate our world. They dominate the cities. And if we only knew what makes for peace. You know, the great trouble in our world today, we think that if we could, if we could, if we could, if we could fix the racial stuff, then we would have peace in the world. And, and the racial stuff doesn't get fixed if you don't meet Jesus. It's just a man, man-centered solution. How do we fix the abortion thing? Only God can fix that. His healing, that He's the author of life. And for the world to understand that God is the Creator, only Jesus can do that work in the world just as longing for peace, clamoring for peace in all kinds of different ways. And they don't understand what He's offering. And I would remind us this morning of this reality. Peace is still offered to the cities and the people of the world, but it's peace on God's terms, not peace on our terms. And that comes that peace comes through a relationship with Him. But yet most of the world is still resisting God's rightful authority. He was willing to make peace on this day, that Monday in Jerusalem, but it would have to be on His terms that they would have to embrace Him as the Messiah. And this is where we are in this country. And I think it's where many of the countries are. But we have a rich faith heritage in this country. When God's standard is ultimately rejected and the people who once knew that walk away from that, there are two things that happen every time. And these two things are happening today in an ever-increasing way. I was talking with someone last week. It's like, it's like every week I'm like... Um, Things can't get any worse. We can't hear any more stories. And then the new week comes and I'm like, well, yeah, we can. We can. We can continue to do it. But this, happen, this happens because we have walked away now. And we are a post-Christian nation. Post, we, we are well beyond where we once were. And every time that happens, the first thing that happens is because we are driven to be worshipers, you know what we do? Our heart naturally makes false gods to worship. We do that. And all over our country today is that we have created false gods. And then with making false gods, there are false paths to get to that God to worship. And it cannot bring about peace. So false gods are created that are full of false paths made by man to get to those false gods. And the second thing that happens, and this is why we are in such trouble today, is that ultimately self becomes the standard for all of truth and for all of life. And man makes a very poor God. We are corrupt. We are evil. And this me-centeredness dominates us. And so they have the Messiah riding into town. The one who can make peace for them. And they will not embrace what He is offering. So Jesus weeps over the city. 
for two reasons. They don't know what makes for peace and that they never saw Him for who He was in their midst. They did not know the time of the, visit, of the special visitation that had come to them. They didn't know that they were the special generation who got to have the Messiah in their midst. So watch what happens. Worship, rejoicing, praising, Pharisees come up. Hey, you've got to stop this. Worship's only for God. Well, if I stop it, the rocks are going to cry out. He sees the city. He's just on the outskirts of the city. It is just towering in front of him. There's, there's the temple. There's the wall around Jerusalem. And he weeps. And then he gets to town and he gets off the donkey. And if you think Jesus is a, wee, a meek, mild man, he's just, oh, he's so kind. Let's pat him on the head and pat him on the back. He steps into the temple and tears the place up. And he pours out his wrath on this impure worship and the corruption in the temple. And let's read what happens. Luke 19.45 He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark records it this way. Just listen to these words. Mark eleven fifteen and following. And they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Let me tell you what ha- used to happen. They used to take, just, I want you to think about how corrupt things had gotten 2,000 years ago. Temple was this big, massive place. And you could take a shortcut through the temple if you were hauling things, construction items. If you're moving, moving your household items, you could cut through the court of the Gentiles and the the women and you could go through that place and you could cut through the temple where people were supposed to be worshiping so that you could save time. And you got people coming through carrying, I don't know, stones, wood. And he's like, no, you're not. Turn around, get out of here. And he cleanses the temple on this day and he rids it of its corruption. Why? The fourth thing he does on this Monday is he embraces the purity of corporate worship. This morning, it's not about anybody in this room this morning. We are not the center, he is the center. We're not going to get drunk this morning on alcohol, we're not going to do any other kind of corrupt things this morning. This is a sacred moment where we are worshiping Christ, where He is going to be the center of our attention and our affection. And Jesus teaches us here, and I believe that He did this, John John wrote in John 2, that I think Jesus did this at the beginning of His ministry, and then they went back to being corrupt, and now He cleanses it at the end of His ministry. So He does it two times. He brings this cleansing because He knows when God's people gather together, it must be about God, it must be about worship. And so he cleanses the temple on this day. And he goes from enjoying the public worship to weeping to cleansing the temple of its impurity. And so the Bible, notice this, does not unveil Jesus as someone who is weak. Rather, it communicates that Jesus is really strong and he's a man of deep character. And he's going to not worry about hurting feelings and disrupting um, corrupt worship that is robbing the people of being connected to God. John 
writes in John 2.15, the first time Jesus cleansed the temple, I think this is awesome, he was a guy, he made a whip of cords and started using it, just popping that, you'd like Indiana Jones to watch when a whip gets in Jesus' hands, and he's not turning it on people, but he's driving the animals out so that the house of worship would be a God-centered place. Let me just remind us, I know you know that, but I just, I'm just going to be a broken record about it. This place, Life Point Fellowship, is not about anybody in this room. We're about Him. He reigns forever. He is the infinite God. And so we don't clamor for positions. We don't make much of ourselves. We are reminded that He is everything. And again, I just think it's awesome that He knows how to make a whip and deal with business. See, he didn't buy into what the culture had, his religious culture had established. As a matter of fact, all over the nation, the religious culture had falsified so many things. The oppression of women, Samaritans, perspective of your enemies, the Romans, lepers, he touched them. The dead, he raised tax collectors he called to follow and brought them into the kingdom and the Sabbath. He challenged the falsehood of the religious authority for their blatant hypocrisy all the time. And by the way, timid men and women challenge what is false. We stand for what is true. And that's what Jesus did. He confronted this establishment of the day He didn't go along with it. And we today need brave men and women again in this time. He was a man on a mission. He never strayed from it. He never tried to get out of the fact that he was going to be horribly beaten, spat on, forced to carry his own cross, nailed to that cross. He hung there, by the way, for six hours after being severely beaten. Weak-minded people don't endure that. Strong people do. And he embraced it all. He stood for righteousness, Jesus did. Real men and women do that. He hungered for righteousness to be established. And I look around today, and I don't know about you, but I wonder where is the hunger and thirst for righteousness sake? For it will be satisfied, Jesus said. Moms brought their kids to him. Why? Because he was incredibly tender and kind. This was even after he had overturned the temple in the beginning in John chapter 2. And later they bring their kids so that Jesus would bless them. Later after he, in this instance, turns over the money tables again and drives out the animals, the children now are running around to the temple. Do you remember what they said? They were repeating what they heard out in the streets, modeled by it, worshipers. And they began to run around in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Adults, we ought to model for kids what authentic worship looks like. Saying biblical things, affirming the glory of Christ. If we do not possess inner holiness as a man or a woman, then we will never reach biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. It won't happen. It happens through righteousness and God's work. And so Jesus affirms for us the purity 
of the corporate gathering. Pretty clear. You know what he did the rest of the week? And I don't know if you know what he did most of the week. I don't think you probably will be surprised. It's what we see in 47 and 48. Look at that. And he was teaching daily. This is the last week in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. I did a little research yesterday. We, I, does anybody, does that surprise anybody that that's how we spent most of us last week? Does that surprise anybody? I don't think it should not at this church surprise anybody. So I looked it up uh, yesterday. Matthew 21 through 25 is teaching from Christ during the last week of his life. That's five chapters. John chapter 12, verse 20, all the way to the end of John 17. Jesus teaches. Luke records for us teaching in the last week in chapters 20 and 21 of his gospel. Mark writes in Mark 11, 20 through 13, 37 teaching. 16 total chapters of the four Gospels are dedicated to the last Monday through Thursday teaching of Jesus. Really significant. This is important. He spent his last week's teaching. We know this well, as I remind us of this all the time. You know, what he, you know how he spent the day of the resurrection? Teaching. He walked with two guys on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 that whole afternoon explaining to them all the things from the Old Testament that were said about him. And then he disappears from them and he appears back in Jerusalem and spends the rest of resurrection night explaining to the apostles what the scripture and the Old Testament had to say about him. What if, let me just speculate, what if the word of God was our guide? It really was our guide. No, it, re- no, I'm, it really was our guide. It really was our passion. What kind of lives would we lead? What kind of influence would we have years and years ago i discovered a story and i want to i think years and years ago i shared it here but it fits this morning as we begin to wind this down i want you to listen to this under the title what if what if what if we at life point really embrace this this is a guy who was a war correspondent in japan in 1945 here's what he writes It was early in 1945 when, as a war correspondent in Okinawa, I first came upon the city of Shimabuku. It was a village. It was the strangest and most inspiring community I ever saw. Huddled beneath its groves of banyan and twisted pine trees, this remote village of 1,000 people was in the path of the American advance and received a severe, because of where it was, bombing. So bombs went all around and landed and blew up things around this village of Shimibuku. But when an advance patrol swept up to the village compound, the soldiers stopped dead in their tracks. Barring their way were two little old men. They bowed low and began to speak in Japanese. The battle-hardened sergeant, wary of tricks, held up his hand and he summoned for an interpreter to come. The interpreter shook his head and said, I don't get it. Um, they're welcoming us to come in as fellow Christians into their village. One of them says he's the mayor of the village. The other says he's the schoolmaster. 
And that's a Bible the older one is holding in his hand. Guided by the two old men, Mojun, here's their names, Mojun Nakamura, who was the mayor, and Shoshai Kina, the schoolmaster, we cautiously toured the compound. We'd seen other Okinawan villages uniformly down at the hills and despairing. By contrast, this one shone like a diamond in a dung heap. Everywhere we were greeted by the people with smiles and dignified bows. Proudly, the two old men showed us their spotless homes, their terraced fields, fertile and neat, their storehouses and granaries, and their prized sugar mill. Gravely, the old men talked on, and the interpreter said, They've only met one other American before, and it was a long time ago. And because he was a Christian, he assumes that you are, we are Christians too, though they can't understand why we were bombing them. Piecemeal, this incredible story came out. Thirty years before, an American missionary was on his way to Japan and had paused at Shimibuku Village. He'd stayed only long enough to make a pair of converts, these two men. Teach them a couple of hymns, leave them a Japanese translation of the Bible, and exhort them to live by it. And they'd had no contact with any Christian since. And yet during those 30 years, guided by the Bible, they had built a Christian community that truly honored God. And the question was asked, how did it happen? Well, picking their way through the Bible, the two converts found not only an inspiring person whom to follow and pattern their life after, but sound precepts on which to base their society. They'd adopted the Ten Commandments as Shimibuku's legal code, the Sermon on the Mount as their guide to social conduct. In Kina's school, the school system, the Bible was the chief literature. It was read daily by all the students, and major passages were memorized. In Nakamura's village, government, government, the precepts of the Bible were law. Nurtured on this book, a whole generation of Shimibukuans had drawn from it the ideas of human dignity and of the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. The result was plain to see. And I want you to listen to this. It's after 30 years. They had no jail, no brothel, no prostitutes, no drunkenness. They had had a divorce in 30 years. And there was a high level of health and happiness among the people. The writer writes, The next day the tide of battle swept us on, but a few days later I wanted to go back. So he requisitioned a jeep and a Japanese-speaking driver, and he went back to Shimibuku. Over the winding roads outside the village, the huge truck convoys and endless lines of American troops moved dustily, and behind them lumbered armored truck tanks and heavy artillery. But inside, Shimibuku was an oasis of serenity. So I strolled through the quiet village streets, soaking up Shimibuku's calm. And then I heard the sound of singing, he writes. We followed it, and I came to Nakamura's house, where a curious religious service was underway. Having no knowledge of church forms or ritual, the Shimibukuans had developed their own. There was much Bible reading by Kina, repeated in sing-song fashion by the worshipers. Then came hymn singing. Now, would you listen to this? You know, back in the 80s, we had the worship wars in the American church. 
do you do hymns? Do you do choruses? Do you do a bland? And churches just got all up in arms about that. That American missionary taught them two English hymns and they got them translated into Japanese. Do you know what they sang for 30 years? Two hymns every week. They didn't have worship wars. Well, y'all didn't sing my song today. You know, the pettiness of our American Christianity sometimes is really shameful. So he recognized the two hymns that they were singing. For 30 years, all they had sung is, Fairest Lord Jesus and all hell the power of Jesus' name. And they were okay with that. He said, swept up in the spirit of all hell, the power we joined in. And after many prayers, voiced spontaneously by the people in the crowd, there was a discussion of community problems. And with every community problem that was addressed, you know what they did? They opened up the Bible to find an answer to address it. Can you imagine what our families would be like when we have issues if this is where we went? With each question, Kena turned quickly to some Bible passage to find the answer. The book's imitation leather cover was cracked and worn and its pages stained and dog-eared from 30 years of constant use. Kena held it with reverent care one would use in handling the original Magna Carta. Well, the service was over. We waited as the crowd moved out and my driver whispered to me, so this is what comes out of only a Bible and a couple of guys who only want to follow Jesus. Then the driver looked at a bombshell that had come into the village and blown the place up and there was a big hole there. He said this, maybe we're using the wrong kind of weapons. Time had dimmed the Shimibukuin's memory of the missionary. Neither Kina nor Nakamura could even recall his name. But they did remember the last thing he told them. As expressed by Nakamura, the missionary told them, you study this book well, and it will give you strong faith in the Creator God. And even when, and when your faith in God is strong, everything else is strong. That's pretty amazing. Do you know that that's a true story? That's not a preacher story. You know, preachers like to tell these stories. That's not a preacher story. There was a village who for 30 years was guided by God's Word. If you don't think this must guide us, it must guide us. And so Christ daily during the last week taught in the temple all day long. And do you remember what it said? The people did what? They hung. They just leaned in and hung on everything that Jesus had to say. So let me give two more things, ideas, and we've got to finish up. So the last week of Christ's life, when He arrived, He stayed in Bethany the first couple of days. He had some friends there, if you remember. Their name's Mary and Martha, and they had a brother named Lazarus. So the first couple of days, He stayed there. And then the fourth and fifth night, probably Wednesday night, probably Wednesday night and Thursday night, He stayed in, uh, in the Mount Olivet that was there um, and probably and likely stayed with the uh, disciples. And what we learn is this. During the last week of Christ's life, you know what he did? He didn't do what a lot of us do and what I at times can be guilty of. You ever get tired of people? You ever get tired of people and like, oh, you got, or, or there, there's something going on and what we want to do is we want to go to a corner somewhere and we just want to, 
I just want to hide myself. I don't want anybody to talk with me. I don't, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to hear anything. I just, I just want to be alone. In the critical hour of the 33 years of Jesus' life, he did not isolate himself the last week. You know what he did? He spent it with other people. He surrounded himself with his friends, and he surrounded himself with the disciples. Not withdrawing, but engaging. Why? Because we need each other. Christ needed his friends in those last days to talk and discuss and to teach, and he spent it in community. So that last week of Christ's life, he embraced the necessity of the community of faith. How about you? Are you making sure you're connecting to others during your hard days? Or are you shutting yourself off and moving to a place of isolation from relationships? Boy, our world last year said, stay away from people. And I'm saying this to us, no, come back to people. Be back in community. Be back in community. What can often happen with people who isolate in faith for too long is they begin to blame that their life is just full of acquaintances and not any deep friends. But sometimes maybe if we were to dig deep enough, we'd discover that maybe we are pushing people away and not allowing people in. And maybe we need to change, not other people need to change. There's a great peril to being an individual who shuts people out, and there's a great, great promise that is connected to letting people in. Right? We need that. We, we need one another. Here's the last thing. Jesus embraced the cup that the Father gave him. Go to Luke 22 now. And we'll finish here. Luke twenty two thirty nine. 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This will remind us this morning as we finish. Friday night here at 7 o'clock, we will have Good Friday service and we will um, focus our attention on the sacrifice of Christ and His broken body and His blood that was shed for us. But I just, just want to remind us here uh, of the beauty of this and, and we see it in the reality that, that Christ embraced the cup and He drank it all. He drank all of it so that you and I could have hope, so you and I could know what the peace of God is about And the cross reveals two very unique things. One, the kind of world that we have and what is needed to bring about restoration and healing in a broken world. 
And the second thing the cross reveals is the kind of God we have. That a God seated in heaven on a throne, surrounded by angels who can't stop affirming His holiness. He left that place and He wrapped Himself in skin and He walked among people like us and at the end of His life He was spat on, He was beaten, He carried a cross. Metal spikes were in His feet and His hands. A cruel crown of thorns was on His head and they drove a spear in His side. And all of that brokenness of our God as He was sacrificed on the altar of the cross tells us the kind of God we have. He is willing to come and give His life for people like you and I. And to reveal to us how we can know Him. So this week, I want to encourage you. Spend some time. We're in Romans 13 this week. Walking through the W4, but drift back to the end of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and look at the things that were taking place and learn from the Savior what He was doing in our midst. Let's pray.